0: You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. So the first deck to clear is that this is not a morality tale about charity. We'll see that as we walk through it. Secondly, this parable is not about romanticizing the poor. It's not a guarantee that the poor will go to heaven and the rich to hell. It's not that simple. Benjamin Kwashi is an Anglican bishop in Nigeria. Commenting on this story, he said that as a local pastor, he met, many more, he met many poor people who are very rich in wickedness. They have nothing, but their heart is full of evil. On the other side of the equation, heaven is represented by Abraham, the father of the Jews, who was exceedingly wealthy. So this is not a simple equation of who goes to heaven and who does not. Nor is it teaching that our salvation is secured through serving the poor. The references to heaven and hell are incidental to that question. Now in my research, I found some great sermons on this passage. One by the aforementioned Benjamin Quashy. Uh, Part of a series called Global Voices. His sermon title is Where Do You Want to Finish Your Life? And key aspects highlighted the shortness of life and finishing strong. Great sermon. Fits this passage. Another message on the topic, another message from this parable is on the topic of hell by Tim Keller. In it, he carefully and gently shows the necessity of divine judgment. This great sermon and also fits the passage. However, I've come to a different conclusion on what I believe is the main point of this passage, something that cuts a circuit all the way back to verse 13, The reality that you cannot serve God in money. I think Jesus' primary intent in this passage, is to warn us of what happens when we stop listening to God. When we turn off the valve of God's Word pouring into our lives, when we no longer believe in its life-giving power and authority, I think these are the five potential outcomes. You know, listening is a part of the communication matrix, is it not? We need to listen. And speaking is the other. Listening and speaking and a common language we both understand is how we communicate. It seems pretty simple, but communication rarely is. Things get in the way. In just about a month here, my parents are going to celebrate their 73rd wedding anniversary. Yeah, it's remarkable. And... You know, they had their normal troubles in communication, but today their communication troubles are quite unique. My mom's voice is so quiet and raspy. And my dad's hearing is shot. (laughs) It is not a good combination. It has led to some comical moments. It leads to awkward moments when my mother turns to me with my father sitting right next to me and in despair saying, he can't hear me. He's not listening. My parents' communications problems are from old age. Old age is not my problem. My problem in communication is on the listening end. Because I am an introvert and because I live inside my head, there is always a very active inner dialogue going on in there. So I might ask my wife, what time are the kids coming over? And she'll give an answer. And then five minutes later, I'm not exaggerating, I will repeat the same question to her. What time are the kids coming over? That concerns her. <laughs> Sometimes I try to cover myself with a qualifier. Now, I know you said it before, just five minutes ago, but what time again are the kids coming over? trying to justify myself. My problem is not that I need a hearing aid. My problem is a matter of focus. It's a matter of attentiveness. Now, God speaks in many ways, but it is not always in some bellowing, dramatic way. He often does not speak in a loud voice. I know. I don't like to be shouted at, and I suppose you don't either. I don't like a preacher who yells or shouts at you. And I suppose you don't either. Back in the Old Testament, in the book of First Kings, God came to one of His prophets after an epic victory. His name was Elijah. And He spoke to him with a still, small voice. Because of that, God's voice is easy to miss. If we are not paying attention, if we are distracted, if our affections are consumed by something else, we are apt to miss it, and this is a terrible loss. The lack of attentiveness described the spiritual condition of the Pharisees. So when Jesus said you cannot serve God and money, they dismissed Him because they were obsessed with money. Their love for money made Jesus' words irrelevant. Jesus' words were like a plane seeking to land with no runway. They had nowhere to land. So there's a warning here of what happens to us when we dismiss Jesus' words, when we ridicule them in our hearts or allow cynicism to color us. Let me try to give you five different outcomes as we walk through this passage Look at verse 14, number 1. So if you're taking notes, there's going to be five points here on, on on outcomes of not listening. First is that you find your identity in the approval of others. When we're not listening, we find our identity in the approval of others. Jesus said, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Jesus counters their rejection by contrasting their desire for approval from people versus God. He says in so many words, you might appear spiritually favored before the people because of your wealth, but in truth, You are not justified before God. Now, the end of the verse says what people value, God despises. That's the NIV. The ESV uses a stronger word, even a word with religious overtones, an abomination. Darrell Bach said that Jesus could not have found a stronger word to use to contrast his values with materialism. For the Pharisees, wealth and status were central to their identity, what they perceived as their highest good. Now, this finds a corollary in the parable. The rich man, I believe, represents the Pharisees. And if that is the case, the rich man is not an atheist or pagan, but, as Keller points out, would have prayed to the God of the Bible God of the Bible, and sought to keep the laws of the Bible. Yet the point of his life was wealth. He has no name in contrast to Lazarus. Did you notice that? He has no name. The reason that might be significant is because Lazarus is the only time Jesus assigned a name to anyone in a parable. It may be that Jesus is highlighting that the rich man lost his identity, his name, so to speak, because he was so wrapped up in his wealth. When our worth is tied up in the approval of others, anxiety and insecurity are always the inescapable result. As our approval is conditional and it's always vulnerable to loss. Here's the second thing. That's one. Second thing that we lose when we stop listening to God is you don't keep your word. We tend to not keep our word. Our relational commitments become less binding. We find justifiable reasons to break our promises to God and to others. Now, this is captured in verse 18, which you may have wondered when you read that verse. How in the world does that make any sense? Let me try to explain this, but we're going to have to begin at verse 16. Verse 16 says, The law and the prophets were until John, and since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Or, Actually, a better reading of that may be is that we insistently urge everyone to enter the kingdom. That may be the better reading of that. Now, Jesus references here first the law and the prophets. Law and prophets is shorthand for the Old Testament. That was the Bible that the Pharisees read. The Pharisees regarded themselves as obeying it, just as the rich man did. But now, beginning with John the Baptist, something new has come. The kingdom of God is being preached This makes it clear that God divides history into two eras, old and new. That is why we have an Old Testament and a New Testament. When Jesus came, He initiated the new era. All the predictions and the prophecies from the Old Testament will be fulfilled through Jesus and the kingdom He establishes. Yet, at the same time, Jesus is not completely dismantling the old. There is a change, yes, but the, values of the the values of the new do not alter the values of the old. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 17, when he says it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now we finally then come to verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Why is this here? I think the reason it's here is that this is a real life example of a God-endorsed value cascading from the old into the new. Making and keeping Commitments. When we stop listening to God's word, Jesus implies, we are more apt to look for ways to wiggle out of the promises that we have made. To renegotiate them to our, example, to our advantage. And Jesus' example here, the example that he uses to illustrate this is the marriage vow made before God and made to one another if a man divorces his wife and marries another he not only commits adultery but it is a violation of his original vow to God you see here is what i think jesus is getting after is that a relationship with the word of god activates us in us a seriousness to the words that we express The Word of God, a relationship with God, activates in us a recognition of the nature of being commitment makers. Our words mean something. The Word of God helps us take our words and our commitments attached to their right seriousness. The call to be a a promise keeper in the old is matched in the new. Now you've heard us talk before about how divorce was terribly easy during the days of Jesus, at least for men. One faction of the Pharisees subscribed to this virtually no-fault divorce policy. They divorced their wives for the smallest of annoyances or infractions. And then they would ground it in this very flimsy interpretation of an Old Testament scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And then when they remarried, all the time claiming, as they remarried, they were claiming that they were not guilty of breaking the seventh commandment that con- condemns adultery. Jesus, here with the Pharisees in the audience, is turning that all upside down, making it right side up, using the issue of marriage itself as an example to talk about what we do when we stop listening to the Word of God. Now, let me just mention an important aside here with this. The point of this passage, the point of this passage is not to discuss the times when divorce is a possible option. There are other scriptures that address that directly. Jesus is giving an example here of how easily we can twist the law to our own advantage. And also, I think Jesus is pointing His attention towards men who terribly abused this system. To close out this point, I want to quote Rick Warren, a very wise quote. Rick Warren said this about commitment. He said, your commitments can develop you or destroy you, but either way, they will define you. Your commitments will define us. The Word of God helps us to maintain our commitments. Let's look at the third thing. What's the third thing that happens when we miss the still, small voice of God? You become blind to the needs of others. You become unaware of the needs of others. Did you notice the vividness of these two characters? The rich man is dressed in fine linen and purple, a sign of great wealth. We imagine Lazarus in rags. The rich man has plenty to eat, a sumptuous feast. Every day, Lazarus is racked with hunger. The rich man bears no hint of physical suffering. The beggar is beset by sores. His situation is so bad that dogs, and by dogs I don't mean household pets, I don't mean lassie, your household dog, the same dog, your pet dog that licks your face to your delight. No, not those dogs. Dogs in the Old Testament were regarded as unclean. These are dirty, disgusting, ravenous scavengers licking the ulceratic sores of Lazarus Jesus could not have painted a more striking contrast the rich man remember has assumed he is in compliance with the law of God and yet look at verse 20 and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus with sores and yet all Lazarus can do is casually feast every day without a care though this man is in very close proximity. He would be a neighbor, right? Remember our definition of a neighbor in the parable of the Good Samaritan? This man would be a neighbor under that definition. We should also note his arrogance, his diminishing of Lazarus. In hell, when the rich man wants a drop of water to cool his tongue, he asked Abraham to send Lazarus to that errand. When wanting to get a message to his brothers again, he asked Abraham to send Lazarus on that errand as well. He still sees Lazarus in a subservient role and himself in a superior position. Wealth and status has permanently inflated this man's sense of self-importance. At some point, he stopped listening to the voice of God, and as a result, one outcome is his heart was hardened towards the needs of others and we wonder how does he justify not helping well here's a possibility perhaps there is an assumption in Lazarus in the rich man's mind that Lazarus is cursed or is undeserving some pharisees had the spiritual belief of false spiritual belief, that their wealth was a sign of God's blessing in return for their righteousness, a sort of stamp of divine approval. And if the rich man saw his wealth as evidence of God's blessing, then it follows he saw Lazarus's poverty as a curse. And if cursed, why should I help? Again, maybe here in the modern day, Perhaps some of our assumptions and excuses for not helping the poor may be similar. You know, this attitude might explain why the Pharisees were sneering at Jesus, literally to be dismissive, to be contemptuous of Him. Who is this Jesus? Who is this poor man being followed by other poor people? Where is God in that? What can He teach us about God's blessing and wealth? I'm not signing up for his seminar. He lost that still small voice of God and lost the tenderness for others. You know, if we can give a positive side of the equation this morning, you might know that it's Black History Month. I read a great story about a, uh, written by Kathy Pierre who celebrated an incredible woman named Franny Lou Hamer. She was a civil rights activist. She was a believer. In addition to her famously saying, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, she also said, a city set on a hill cannot be hid. And I don't mind my light shining. I don't hide that I'm fighting for freedom because Christ died to set us free. Her voters' rights activism put her life on the line. And she was jailed, beaten, tortured, and sexually assaulted by white supremacists. She was left with permanent damage to her eye, kidney, and leg, and yet it did not stop her. Before her death in 1977, she found a farm cooperative for about 1,500 poor families, giving them a reliable food source and a level of financial stability. Again, her commitment to the needs of others, Her awareness of others' needs flowing from her commitment to Christ. Let's look at a fourth one. A fourth outcome of when we stop listening to the still, small voice God, and that is that you cease thinking about eternity. We cease thinking about eternity. You know, a great surprise here awaits the rich man, doesn't it? There's a reversal in the afterlife. That is part of what makes this story so memorable. Reversals, right, are classic in storytelling. When the audience's understanding of everything in the story in a single moment is turned on its head, all reality changes in an instant. Now, go back a few years, but think about the movie The Sixth Sense, right? Right? Great reversal, how when you find out the psychologist being dead puts now everything in a completely different light. I suppose all of you can think of a great story where it was the reversal that caught you. That's what we have here. Lazarus is in heaven, the rich man is in hell, and a great chasm lies between them so that no one could cross over to the other. For the rich man, his trajectory towards hell began in this life. Hell is the inevitable result of an identity built on self-gratification. His continued arrogance towards Lazarus shows nothing has changed. His actions reveal a heart never recreated, a heart never regenerated through the power of the Holy Spirit never made humble his heart, never made humble and kind through repentance. God's love was not in him. As one author put it, his attitude towards his possessions was one of self-serving greed. And this lack of repentance resulted in divine judgment, which three times he describes as torment or anguish. Now, whether the fire of hell is real or metaphorical, I believe metaphorical, nonetheless, hell remains a barren place of desolation and a place of great spiritual thirst. When we stop thinking about eternity, our accountability to God, a future judgment, When we shroud ourselves in the false belief that we are independent, autonomous beings, arbiters of our own morality, small sovereigns, without any need for God, death then reverses all of that illusion with an overwhelming tidal wave of reality. One of this year's Oscar nominees was a movie called The Irishman, starring Robert De Niro. Brent McCracken is a cultural commentator that I really like. He offers a captivating look at one of America's whodunits. The movie was all about, or I shouldn't say all about, the, 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 um, the, uh, uh, the text that appears to us about the movie is Who Killed Jimmy Hoffa? That's what the movie appears to be about. But as you know, Martin Scorsese, once Catholic, still wrestles with these eternal issues, if you've seen his movies, and this is more of a question than who killed Jimmy Hoffa. It's a question of how we live. It's a question of how we reckon with our past sins. It's a question of how we prepare for death. De Niro plays a mobster who at the end of his life tries to address his sins, but he's not truly sorry. The priest tells him, to be sorry you must feel something. You must be truly sorry. He wasn't truly sorry. And at the end of his life in a nursing home, he's weak, lonely, and abandoned by those closest to him, and most of all, afraid. And it pictures the sadness and the emptiness of life. Even for all of his underworld exploits, the viewers at the end of this movie are reminded that life is a vapor, a quickly forgotten whisper. And all that we do in the name of your fleshly fortune and glory will fade into oblivion. When the rich man stopped listening to the voice of God, he forgot about that. He ceased to think about eternity. Now I'm going to give you the fifth reason, but I'm going to skip this point for the sake of time. I just want to say in this fifth reason, the fifth outcome of how we uh, what happens when we stop listening is we justify our unbelief. What happens here, I'll just explain it briefly. What happens here is that this man tells Abraham to warn his brothers because, hey, uh, Abraham, if you send them like a cheap networks horror show, if you send to them some ghostly figure like from where I'm at, then they'll believe. What's the subtext of that? What's the subtext? The subtext is, I didn't have enough information. I was treated unfairly. I wasn't given the information that I need in order to believe. And how does Jesus respond to that? (laughs) So classic. No, no. You had everything you needed. You had everything. Moses and the prophets, you had in the Old Testament everything you needed in order to have salvation and a relationship with God. You had it. But this is a serious case of deflection. And when we ignore the still small voice of God, then we justify our unbelief by saying we didn't have enough information. But it's only a deflection. Okay, so five things here that happen when we stop listening and and again i I believe that the whole you know what we try to do is when we when we teach the scriptures as teachers we try to embody we try to grab the feel of the fabric of the passage itself and what we have here is a warning this is a warning These are the kinds of outcomes when, Christian, not just non-Christian, but when, as Christians, we stop paying attention to the still, small voice of God. We find our identity in the approval of others. Our word is no longer our word. We become increasingly blind to the other. The needs of others were caught in our own narcissism. We stop thinking about eternity, and then we begin to justify our points of unbelief through deflection and through blame shifting. So, what do we do about this? Let me just take the remaining minutes here and take a little bit of a pivot, if we could. If we could take a mental pivot. I don't want to leave us with just the warning which again what I think this passage is, I want to give us one thing that we can do in order to hear the still, small voice of God. And here's what I want to do with this in just a few minutes. I want to encourage us to read the Scriptures. Now that we've said many times. But I want to give you something that I read this past week that answers very succinctly why we read the scriptures. I wish I could have done this myself. I'm just not that creative. But this is very creative, and I think it will be a, an encouragement to you as you think about why do we read the scriptures? And again, remember, we're encouraging you that this year, as we always do, but particularly this year. And we hope that you're going through the Psalms of Jesus every day by Tim Keller. Some of the references, even this past week, through the Psalms, particularly emphasize the importance and the value of God's word and the importance and value of listening to God's word we hope that you're going through this but I found this uh, uh, it's a blog post by British pastor he's British that's why that's why it's so creative on why we read scripture and I want to close with this as a way of encouraging us so we've warned you on the outcomes but so what do I do then How do I read the Scripture in a way that I can can hear the still small voice of God? Let me go through these thoughts by Andrew Wilson. Number one, why do we read Scripture? We do not read it to earn. It is so easy to be tricked into thinking like this. But the purpose of reading the Bible is never to present God with a good work that entitles you to reward. You are no more justified, are loved by God after reading the Bible for an hour than you are playing PlayStation or having breakfast or going for a walk. Let's just get that out of the way, number one. We don't read it in order to earn, okay? Instead, we read it to learn. We read it to learn about God, about His world, about ourselves, about how they fit together in his purposes despite the popularity of phrases like we need transformation not information careful reading is always going to involve learning things we don't know so we might be changed by them psalm one nineteen seventy three 73 says give me understanding to learn your commands a disciple is a learner reading scripture is more than learning But it is not less than that. It's not less than that. We read to learn. Secondly, we read it to discern. Hebrews 5, 13 and 14 says, Solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish between good and evil. Maturity is not just knowing what to think, but how to think. It is not just knowledge, but it is wisdom. And regular Bible reading, in other words, constant use, shapes the way we think about everything, whether the subject is directly addressed in the pages or not. Diligence produces discernment. We read to discern. Next, we read it to turn. We read the Scriptures to help us turn from our sin and to turn to Christ. Scripture shapes our thinking and it shapes our behavior. Psalm 119.11, David said, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This, the word of God, aims at repentance. And this happens not just negatively, turning away from sin, but positively turning again to Jesus and following Him once more. Fourthly, next, we read it to burn. When I open the Scriptures in the morning, I am looking for fire. I want passion to rise within me for God and His kingdom. I want heat as well as light. I want joy fuel. I want to experience the God about whom I am reading, as if Jesus was personally explaining it to me in the room. Luke 24, 32 says, We're not our hearts burning within us while He talked with us on the road and opened the Scriptures to us. We're not our hearts burning within us. And then finally, we read it to yearn. Reading the Bible stirs our hearts with desire for another world. As we read, the seed of the kingdom is awakened in us. We long for the realities of heaven to become realities on earth. We pine for the day when our faith will be sight and justice will roll down like rivers and death will be swallowed up in victory. Out of that longing comes hope and out of that hope comes prayer. We read it to yearn. Why do we read the Scriptures? We read it to learn, to discern, to turn, to burn, and to yearn. And friends, when we do that in a position of humility and dependence and expectation every day, you are going to experience the still, small voice of God in your life. The last thing I want to say this morning. This was in one of our readings this past week. Is that Jesus was saturated with God's Word. He was saturated with God's Word. You know, when He was on the cross, He, uh, he wasn't able just to pick up a Bible and read it, was He? And yet, on the cross, His words as He quoted Scripture, Psalm 22 Psalm 31.6. In that moment of terrible injustice, in that moment of catastrophe, in that moment of weakness, what comes out of the mouth of our Savior? Scripture. God's Word saturated, living, breathing in Him. One of His final words, Psalm 31.5. Into your hands. I commit my spirit. The word of God was dripping from his lips. You and me, we can share in Jesus' life. We can experience the presence of the Father now, whether we are in blessing or whether we too are experiencing injustice, being misunderstood, feeling in a sense like you're being crucified. We can experience the presence of the Father through the same agency as Jesus did God's Word. Word of God, speak. Let's pray. (sighs) Father, we ask You now here by Your Holy Spirit, what all do You want to do here, as we turn to you in song, as we come to you with our offering, as we come to you in prayer, what do you still want to do in our lives and our hearts, Holy Spirit? Maybe some of us here haven't thought about eternity for a long time, heaven or hell, accountability to you, or maybe some of us have been so fixated on ourselves, so concerned for our goals, our agenda, our wealth, our status, or whatever else we're building our identity on, that there's a Lazarus right outside the door that we just don't see. Lord, maybe for some of us it's been months since we've picked the Bible up. Maybe for some of us we sit here day after, or Sunday after Sunday, week after week, and we're cynical, we're sneering, dismissive of, not the pastors, but dismissive of the words of Jesus. Don't believe them. Don't believe in their life-giving power Maybe long ago you stopped believing in their life-giving authority. And now you can feel those outcomes just growing in your heart, encroaching your heart like barnacles on a boat. They're just crawling up around you and they're beginning to get inside of you. You find yourself becoming small. Your heart is decreasing. You can't remember the last time you heard the still, small voice of God. When you fear losing someone's approval, your whole life collapses. When you fear losing someone's approval, you spin into a depression for weeks. Because it means too much to you. Maybe you've become overly sensitive and people can't say anything to you. Any kind of criticism that comes your way, you just you find yourself just rejecting and blaming and judging them. And you've become so sensitive. You can't. you, You need so much the approval of others. You can't hear a word of criticism. Or you get a word of criticism, again, you're spun into weeks where you're just you're just lost because you can't you've not been listening to the still small voice of God who offers assurance who offers comfort who says though the world may reject you I receive you to whom David prayed keep me as the apple of your eye show me the wonders of your great love Hide me in the shadow of your wings when others reject me. You've not known how to pray those prayers. Because it's been months since you've talked to Him or months since you've opened the Bible. Where is the Holy Spirit speaking to you this morning? Friends, He may not shout, it may be a still, small voice, which means you're going to have to quiet the other things in your life. You're going to have to quiet that inner dialogue. You're going to have to quiet the other voices competing. It'll have to be like you're singing a solo part in a four-part harmony, and you've got to just hear your part, and you've got to dismiss the others in order to stay in tune. Sometimes it takes that kind of concentration to hear the still, small voice of God above the clutter. Are you willing to do that? Jesus, continue by Your Holy Spirit now to surprise us here with the power of Your presence. Do what You wish with us, Father. We as a faith community, we belong to You We are yours. You are our shepherd. You lead us beside quiet waters. You cause us to lie down in green pastures. You guide us through the paths of righteousness for your namesake. You provide a meal for us in the presence of our fears, in the presence of our shame, in the presence of our guilt, in the presence of our despair, You provide a sumptuous feast for us. Lord, may joy again run over. May we again tap into You and the joy fuel that You provide. May our hearts burn and may our hearts yearn as we hear the still, small voice. God, let us now respond to you in song, in offering, in worship. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.